If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode 78 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Julie Dirksen. Julie is the author of Design for How People Learn, which we feel pretty confident is something that all listeners to this podcast want their organizations to be doing. Before we get to the interview, though, we want to take a moment to thank Castle, our sponsor for the second quarter of 2017. Castle is an accomplished full services certification and licensure testing company that also offers its clients a variety of learning solutions capabilities. With an expert team of testing and instructional design professionals and a 30-year history of excellence in its field, Castle understands what it takes to develop and deliver quality learning and certification programs. To find out more about Castle's custom learning solutions, go to leadinglearning.com slash castle. We also want to note that recordings from our recent Learning Technology Design, or LTD, virtual conference are now available. We created LTD specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development, and you can get access to all of the great content delivered at the live online event by going to ltdleadinglearning.com. And we want to continue our tradition of offering a resource to you listeners. And for our resource today, we want to highlight some content that relates to the interview with Julie Dirksen. Julie makes a free chapter from her book available on her website. It's chapter eight of Design for How People Learn, and it's titled Design for Motivation. It's really valuable content, and Julie's made it available for free, no money, no email required. So to get that, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash motivation. And it's great to have that chapter available to give folks a, a taste of design for how people learn. And Salisa, I assume you got to dig into the book in some detail with Julie in your conversation. Yes, absolutely. She's uh, very uh, deeply uh, versed in instructional design and uh, learning strategy as well. And so we talk about um, what she sees and others too as you know one of the primary responsibilities of instructional design really being to manage cognitive load so that the learner can really focus on what's most essential and most important. We also talked about how uh, most learning solutions are designed to address a gap. So here's where the learner is now. There's someplace else where you want the learner to be. And then she talks about the variety of different types of um, solutions that might fit that gap that will get the learner from there from where they are to where they should be. And it can be everything from just um, knowledge and information, but as she points out, usually that's not the case. It's often more um, a matter of, of practice and skills and motivation. So we dig into all those variety of things there. And just in general, I think it was a very useful, very good conversation. So even if listeners don't necessarily wear the instructional design hat at their organization, this is the type of good information to just understand how learning happens and understand the range of choices out there um, that are available to, to helping get our learners where we want them to be. Well, I feel confident we are about to load up our listeners' cognition with some great insights from Julie. So let's go ahead and roll that interview. Hello out there, I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Julie Dirksen. Julie is a learning strategy consultant and instructional designer with more than 15 years of experience creating highly interactive e-learning experiences for a wide range of clients. She's also the author of the book, Design for How People Learn. 
Julie, thanks so much for making time for the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah, thank you. And so since I offered just a a brief taste of what you do, would you say a little bit more about your work and background to start things off? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I consider myself kind of first and foremost an instructional designer. um, And despite the fact that I've worked in e-learning a lot, I actually consider myself to be sort of format agnostic. Um, You know, it's everything from... uh, you know, large conference kinds of work to uh, workshops to face-to-face to um, e-learning to blended to virtual classroom, all of that kind of stuff. And I've worked in, in sort of all of those mediums. Um, I primarily deal with adult audiences. So it could be workplace. Um, it could be uh, other kinds of adult education, or it could be occasionally I spend some time in, in higher education, but that's, that's not my, that's not my primary focus. Um, and in terms of the work that I've been doing the last few years, um, it's really focused on kind of two areas. Um, one is trying to kind of help and expand, um, uh, helping other people learn to do instructional design well and things like that. Um, I always say the origin story of most of the people who wind up doing instructional design is sort of, hey, you're a good customer <laughs> service rep. We're going to let you train customer service reps. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so, so many people come into it kind of via domain knowledge. They have a high degree of domain expertise and, you know, knowledge about their topic and they get asked to teach it to somebody else. And that um, then they sort of don't, you know, they know their topic really well, but they don't know very much about how to teach it or communicate it or design learning for it. And so that was very much kind of how I saw the, the audience for the book. Um, and so a lot of what I've been doing in the last few years has been doing workshops based on that and so forth um, for kind of all sorts of different audiences, nonprofit healthcare to, to corporate, to startups, to whatever, whatever's uh, made sense. And then um, the other piece of what I'm really interested in these days is kind of uh, the science of behavior change and kind of understanding what's happening in that research arena and trying to figure out how do we bring that back into different kinds of learning and development efforts. Um, There's a lot of really interesting science going on. Um, uh, I think the sort of interest in behavioral economics over the last 10 years has been a big piece of it and looking at the whole question of nudging and those sorts of pieces. A lot of it's happened in kind of uh, health and wellness areas, recognizing that just, you know, telling people to eat better and lose weight or, you know, be healthier, exercise more, isn't really, you know, accomplishing very much. And so the sort of traditional model of just telling people louder and more emphatically to do those things, um, uh, you, you know, we sort of recognize that there's real limitations to that. And so there's some really nice science around uh, behavior change and habit formation and behavioral economics and all of those kinds of things that's coming out. And so that's actually where I spend, I think, kind of the majority of my time these days. And so when I do do uh, projects, it tends to be things that have kind of a tricky behavior change problem, which I usually define as they know what to do, but they're still not doing it. So what's going on there and trying to understand that and, um, uh, and design for design better solutions for it. Well, that's great. And, and, you know, that first thing that you said that sort of motivates you, that that desire to help um, others understand instructional design and how to do it better, I think that segues well into this next question I wanted to ask you, which is that you've asserted that one of the primary responsibilities of instructional design is the ruthless management of cognitive load. So will you talk a little bit about that, sort of unpack that statement for us? 
Yeah. So, you know, arguably there's different ways that instructional designers add, add value to the process. Um, one of the, one of the challenges is that, um, you know, for our field and it happens to other fields too, like graphic designers and things like that is that everybody sort of thinks that they know what good learning looks like, um, because they've all been in classrooms, you know, we've all been in classrooms since we were little kids and we've all been in training classrooms as adults and we've all been in conference sessions and all of these things. And, um, uh, and we know we know when they're good, you know. We know when we really like them, and we know when they're bad. Um, but the uh, the sort of magic of what actually makes something good or makes something bad is sometimes harder to come up with than people realize, mm-hmm. you know, because they recognize good from bad, um, or at least think they do. Sometimes things that are entertaining aren't also effective, <laughs> right? And so there's there's that problem. But um, the uh, uh, the the difficulty with it is is that be, they think because they know what what at least they think good looks like and bad looks like they they think it can't possibly be that hard to make those things happen. Um, and you know, that's not true. (laughs) Um, you know, I can read a good novel and uh, read a bad novel and recognize that one's good and one's bad, but it doesn't mean that I can write a good novel. Um, so, uh, the, um, uh, so when we look at kind of what value, um, uh, instructional designers add to the process. There are a couple of big areas. One is having people, you know, helping people really sort of, um, uh, you know, understand the problem and make sure that they're solving the right problem and the training or learning experiences are really the right answers to the problem and those kinds of things. Um, but another one is there's a kind of classic problem that happens when somebody becomes an expert in something and it happens to all of us. It's just sort of normal is you don't, it's really hard to go back and remember what it was like to not know this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, it's obvious. And the metaphor that I often use for this is like, it's like a closet, you know? And when you're an expert in something, you have the California closet of like, you know, you have the beautiful closet with a million shelves and the, the, you know, special shoe racks and the, <laughs> you know, the, the super organized things. And you have an enormous amount of information that you know about this topic and it's all organized beautifully. And you all, you know, you have categories, Categories and you have, you know, um, strategies for it and all of these kinds of things. And what happens with experts is they want to take all the contents in that closet and go, okay, well, this is all I know about this topic here. I'm going to give it to somebody. Um, you know, I'm going to take all my knowledge and, and give it to somebody. And the challenge there is that when you're a novice and you've got little or no knowledge about the topic, you basically have the equivalent of one of those little half-sized gym lockers, um, <laughs> you know, that that I haven't had since I think grade school. But, um, um, but the... Uh, the, you know, so what you're doing is you have this, this expert who in, with absolutely the best intentions in the world wants to take all, you know, big piles of stuff out of their closet and just hand it to this person. Um, and, you know, this poor, this poor person is like, I am literally drowning in this stuff and it's coming out of the closet and I can't find anything and I don't know where it goes. And, you know, it's kind of like, blah. <laughs> Um, and so good instructional designer can kind of help mediate that because, um, basically what happens is, is that, you know, your novice gets overwhelmed by this or it's too much information or they can't figure out how to parse it or things like that. And there are all these really great strategies for making something easier for, um, 
someone with little or no context to understand. You know, you can use storytelling, you can use analogies, you can use visuals, you can, you know, kind of give them an organizing framework, you know, all of those kinds of things. And the other thing you can do is you can just throttle the amount of information that you expect anybody to consume at any one time. And that's a really valuable source of expertise that a good instructional design person should have is, is, you know, there's two parts to it. One is being able to design sort of a good flow of information and, um, and some good ways to interact with it. But then the other one is, you know, really helping negotiate that with the subject matter expert. Um, you know, so it, like there's a few things that I found that I'm doing these days with when I work with subject matter experts that are really helpful. And one is sort of asking them to describe how they learned a particular thing and having them kind of remember back and, you know, asking them how long did it take you and, you know, what, what really made it kind of be clear for you and things like that. And so if you can get them to, to, to do that sort of throwback into remembering when they were that learner, um, that helps a lot because then they, they both can kind of start to understand like, oh, okay, you're right. I didn't learn this all at once. And, you know, here are the things that made it memorable for me. Um, and also it kind of creates a little bit more empathy for the poor learner. Who, you know. <laughs> Going to be overwhelmed otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and actually that's a, a great topic I'd like to talk a little bit more about because a lot of our listeners organizations work with subject matter experts to to develop learning products. So, you know, you just gave one example of kind of um, asking that subject matter expert to think back to what it was like to learn to do X or Y or Z. You know, what other advice um, would you offer to folks working with subject matter experts um, to develop learning that might help them with that process of kind of um, that exchange between the subject matter expert and the instructional designer or the, the kind of organization behind the learning product that would help that process and then the end result, the learning experience, um, be as effective as possible? Right. Yeah, so um, a lot of it starts at the beginning uh, with being able to really define what it is they want people to learn. Because a lot of times you get hand-wavy answers. You know, um, we want them to improve customer service. Well, that's great, and it's, it's a laudable goal, but what does that actually mean? And so being able to get people to define um, what they're really trying to accomplish with any learning experience. And I've got a couple of things around that. With, with you know, learning objectives, um, the traditional instructional design model involves Bloom's taxonomy and all these kinds of things. And I've actually never found that terribly useful. So I just have two, um, two questions I'll usually ask to evaluate a learning objective. One is, uh, can you tell if they've done it? Um, and, uh, would it happen in the real world is Mm -hmm. the other one. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if you're doing a language learning curriculum, you might have a learning objective, like knows all of the common Dutch prepositions. Well, that's something you can tell if somebody's done, you can ask, you know, and give them a test and see if they know the Dutch prepositions, but nobody in the real world is ever going to stand up and go, you know what? I'm just going to recite some Dutch prepositions (laughs) for you. Um, I sort of wish you would, you know, any Dutch prepositions? (laughs) I know German prepositions. I don't know any Dutch prepositions. Prepositions, but um, uh, but you know what they do do with prepositions is they describe the location of objects, and that's something they totally would do in the real world. So by fixing those learning objectives and making them more based on the actual tasks that people are going to do, um, that actually has a remarkable effect on kind of clarifying what the learning experiences should be. Um, the other way I sometimes describe it is uh, is the is the is the smartphone test, which is basically if you took a photo or a video of it, them doing it, what would it look like? 
Mm. So if we said better customer service and I said, well, okay, if you take a photo or video of better customer service, what would it look like? And, you know, if it's in a retail store, for example, it might be, um, you know, somebody smiles at customers and, you know, offers help and calls to see if another store has a thing and, you know, they could list off here are the actual things that I would see if I took a photo or a video of it. So with professional organization kinds of stuff, you know, a lot of times they're dealing with sort of bigger, heady topics and, um, you know, ongoing professional development and all sorts of things. But, you know, a lot of it still really does come down to what what do you want people to do with this? Like, what is the, what is the positive outcome? Now, when you're dealing with uh, professional training too, you're dealing with a bit of more of an expert level frequently. You're dealing with people who are already pretty experienced who are trying to, um, uh, you know, who are trying to, uh, um, expand their knowledge or do continue, you know, ongoing development or, you know, any of those kinds of things. And the nice thing about that is it actually does give you a little bit more latitude um, in terms of the learning experience because these are people who already have pretty nice closets, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you do just hand them, you know, a stack of like winter sweaters or something, they actually know what to do with it. Um, and so there is more latitude, but being able to help people um, make the leap in terms of being able to apply it as soon as they go back to their worlds, you know, and figuring out, again, what do the behaviors really look like and what are the tools that are going to make it most likely that people are going to be able to take this stuff that we're, you know, that we're creating learning experiences around and do something with it as soon as, you know, as soon as they go back to the real world. Yeah, that's great. Uh, And I like that you kind of simplify it down to just the, you know, uh, can you tell if they've uh, mastered that in terms of the learning objective and then would it happen in the real world? That's that's great to sort of really focus on what's meaningful and what's measurable. Um, you know, I know that you use the learning as journey metaphor in your book and, and you talk about um, there being a, a gap between where learners are and where they need to be. But I also think one of the interesting things you do is you talk about the kinds of gaps that might exist for for learning to address. Would you talk a little bit about those different types of gaps and and then what the implication might be for for learning or how we go about filling those gaps? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have kind of a whole set of diagnostics that I use when I'm trying to break down a learning objective to determine what instructional approaches are really required for that um, that element. And so uh, the the categories that I usually use is is kind of an information or knowledge gap. Sometimes ge- the gap genuinely is you know like somebody doesn't have the knowledge, and if they just have the knowledge or the information, they'll be fine. And and that I would say that's not most of the situations that uh-huh. I deal with, but um, but it it can happen. You know, like you just need the updated tax guidelines for X. And if we can just give you that information, you will be able to go happily on your way and, and, you know, continue to be effective in the world if you just have, you know, the updated guidelines for, you know, for this particular thing. Um, uh, so, and, you know, but more frequently knowledge is a piece of, of other things. So in order to do, you know, to do this particular um, behavior, I do need some knowledge to go with it, but I'm going to need some other things as well. So there's knowledge. Then um, I look at procedural uh, gaps and procedural gaps I define as something where we have a pretty explicit, well-defined rule set for what the task is. So it's either something where we've really, like, it's just not that complicated. Like how do you print a document in, you know, Microsoft Word? Like there's three or four different ways to do it, but we can write down the steps and it 
it's pretty clear. There isn't a lot of ambiguity in the process. Um, or a process might be something like how to take blood pressure or, you know, um, uh, fields where you can kill people. They've done a lot of work to take things that used to be more ambiguous and make them very procedural and very explicit. Um, so airplane pilots have a lot of procedurals, you know, procedure things to find and checklists and steps and so forth, or, uh, medical professionals or, you know, things like that. And the answer is, you know, yeah, we want you to use your judgment when it comes down to certain instances, but really mostly we just want you to follow the steps and we know what the steps are and we just need to, you know, train you on how to do those steps or, um, give you enough practice doing those steps that you can do it pretty automatically. So if it's procedural, it's, there isn't a ton of judgment, um, that needs to be used, but, but they just needs to be instances where there's sufficient practice to get to whatever level of proficiency you need that person to be at. And if it's an infrequently used procedure, then it may be a case of like looking at job aids or something, uh, performance support in the environment to help them. Then the next category that I talk about are skills. And the the answer or the, the, the first question I'll start with to, to, to identify skills is, is it reasonable to think that somebody can be proficient without practice? And if the answer is no, it's not reasonable to think that somebody can be proficient without practice. We're probably in the into the skill area. Um, procedures, they may need to practice to get to the point where they can do it automatically, but if if they can do it holding the checklist and still be pretty proficient, then we know it's a procedure. Mm. Um, so if I give you the steps for printing a document in Microsoft Word, you can probably do it without practice. If it is, there's no way that you're going to be good at it unless you've practiced it, then we know we're kind of moving over into the skills bucket. And within skills, there's some questions I'll usually ask to try to identify um, different kinds of things. So one is... Is the question of what level of proficiency do people need to get? Do they need to do the right thing automatically? Because that takes a lot of practice, and you're going to have to build a lot of practice into your um, into your learning experience to get there. Is it a skill that they use frequently or infrequently? So if it's frequently, then they'll get a lot of practice when they actually are on the job, and then you can arrange just more of a supervisor and mentoring kind of thing to kind of keep an eye on them while they practice to make sure that they're not veering in into the wrong direction about something. If it's an infrequently used skill, you're going to have to look at things like how often do we refresh it? You know, um, CPR, for example, they do once a year, you know, a refresher so that um, people don't completely lose it. But, uh, you know, that's, and that's probably a compromise between what's most effective and what's most practical for people. Um, but if it's an infrequently used skill, how are you going to support it when, you know, if they're not going to use this for six months or a year, how are you going to support it when they have to, you know, pull their materials out and go, wait, what, what do I do here again? Mm. Um, uh, some other questions around skills. Um, is it something that people learn um, explicitly? So again, there's rules or more tacitly. So I was working with a group that was, um, doing healthcare improvement science um, and teaching healthcare improvement processes to um, healthcare facilities. And part of the part of the process was identifying the root cause of a problem in the clinic or the facility. And I was like, okay, well, how do they know, you know, and there's all these analysis methods for determining root cause. You can do the five whys, you do fishbone, you do whatever. And I'm like, so how do they know when to stop analyzing? How do they know when they really have probably gotten to the root of the root cause. And they said, oh, well, huh. you kind of know it when you see it. 
And I'm like, great, because that's not hard to communicate to somebody. Um, but there are things like that, right? There are things where, um, you know, people just kind of get a feel with it. I was doing some Six Sigma um, work recently, and it was the same sort of thing where, like, well, how do you know when you've got a really good, you know, why statement? Well, you just kind of get, you know, after a while, you just kind of get good at it. And what that means is whenever you hear language, like, you just know when you see it, or you just kind of get good at it, or you have to practice a lot, or, you know, any of those kinds of things, what they're really saying is there, this is a tacit um, learning activity. Um, and people learn this by seeing examples until they start to get um, a sort of an unconscious sense of pattern recognition of what's good and what's bad. And when they've seen enough examples, they'll start to they'll start to get better at it. Mm. And well, that's really interesting because if that's the case, then a big part of our learning strategy should be exposing these people to enough examples um, and figuring out how do we get enough examples in there because it's not always that easy to get enough case examples of something like that. Um, but if if it's going to be, you know, if it really is something that gets learned through tacit knowledge, that's going to have to be part of the um, going to be have to be part of the learning design. Um, another one is variability of outcome. And then I'll stop. I'll move on from skills. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot um, here. Yeah, yeah. Variability of outcome is um, is there one right answer? So if you're taking somebody's blood pressure, there might be one right answer or a fairly limited set of answers. But if you're designing a website for somebody, that's a skill where there could be literally hundreds of right answers that all meet the client's need and do a good job of it. But each one looks, you know, a little or a lot different. Um, you know, and there probably are some common elements that should be present for the right answer, no matter what what version it is. But you, you know, literally, if you took the same website problem to a hundred different designers, you would get a hundred different websites, and lots of them might be great. Um, so, if there's a high degree of variable of out, variability of outcome in what a right answer could be look like, that also points you to the idea that uh, hey, we're going to have to look at a lot of case examples. So one case example is probably not going to be enough to communicate what's good or bad about a particular um, solution or something like that. Right. Well, great. So, so, I mean, so yeah, there are a range of then different ways or what, what might be missing to get those learners from where they are to where they need to be. Like you're saying, just could be knowledge, although that seems like it's usually unlikely or in very few cases, actually the issue and often more, it's this, this issue of skills um, and, and the ability to practice and give examples. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, and then, then there's a few more, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, please. Yeah. Go on. Um, uh, there's motivation issues or motivation or affect issues. And that, that really is that category of they know what to do, but they're still not doing it. Um, you know, that's that behavior change stuff. And when we get into those kinds of problems, I've got a whole kind of separate list of diagnostics that I usually look at for that. And it has to do with our incentives misaligned, our people fearful or intimidated are, um, is there an absence of feedback that tells them, you know, if they're doing right or wrong, or there's just no visible feedback in the system. So I've got about, I don't know, uh, 16 or 20 things that I'll usually kind of go through as a checklist to identify what are the likely reasons why, um, 
you know, uh, this behavior is not happening? Is it a case of learned helplessness and they've been punished for trying to do it in the past, which unfortunately does happen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so there's a whole bunch of reasons why those situations could be the case. So they could they could have the knowledge, they could even have the skill, but yet they're not convinced that it's worthwhile or they're not convinced that it'll be successful or, you know, a whole bunch of reasons why people can have you know, all of the ability to do the thing and they're still not doing it for some reason. Right. Uh, uh, And then uh, another category I've sort of pulled out more recently as a separate thing is the issue of habit development. Um, Because that's another case where people can have the knowledge, they can even be able to do it, um, and they can even want to, like they can even be motivated, I want to do this thing, and still doesn't happen very regularly. You know, so managers giving feedback to their employees. I mean, that's a really classic problem that employees have have is that they feel like they're not getting enough feedback on how they're doing. And so, you know, we're pretty sure the world would be at a better place if managers were skillful, if all managers were skillful and regular about giving feedback to employees, um, their subordinates or direct reports. And so, uh, you know, or, um, you know, in the case of ongoing professional development stuff, you know, how do people know that they're getting better at their profession? How do people know that they're um, making progress? How do people know when they've plateaued or stagnated or, you know, things like that? Are they getting feedback in the system that's telling them, you know, those kinds of things? Are there things that have become, because they've been doing this job for a while, are there things that, it, you know, maybe aren't the most useful things, but have become habitual? And um, and then, you know, undoing old habits and inculcating new habits is, is, is really challenging. Um, and so, when we're dealing with habit-based kinds of issues, we're dealing with a different set of problems in some ways because one of the big things that you're almost always dealing with with habits is either turning something into an automatic behavior or um, uh, undoing an automatic behavior, both of which are really pretty hard, actually. Um, And the science, I feel like, is still really very much evolving around this. Um, There's some good research coming out of the UK. Uh, Ben Gardner is one of the people and a few other people um, around uh, habit formation. BJ Fogg out of Stanford does some stuff with with tiny habits, too. But um, the, uh, the whole issue of how do you help people form habits and how do those habits become regular and how do we not fall off of them. Um, those are all some pretty challenging, you know, those are all some pretty challenging problems. And there are a number of things. So the definition that you usually use for habits is an automatic or near automatic behavior that happens in response to a stimulus in the environment. So something in the environment happens and I go, oh, this is a time where I need to do that, that behavior. Like that's the, that's the functional, you know, thing. So whether it's, um, you know, remembering to floss in the morning or remembering to, you know, tell your subordinate they did a good job or um, remembering to, you know, uh, you know, it could be the habit of a bigger thing, like, you know, exercising is a habit is an interesting, is an interesting problem or something like that. But, um, but the strategies around helping people develop those are a little bit different than the strategies of just say skill development or knowledge transfer or, you know, any of those kinds of things. And all of these things are sort of messy. I mean, they all kind of overlap a little bit, but, um, but habits are kind of a distinct area and it's a really interesting one for me. Um, because like I said, I think the science is still evolving on it. 
Um, and then the last category I have for gaps is kind of its own thing, which is um, environmental gaps, which is the idea that sometimes it's easier to fix the environment than it is to fix the person. Um, the story I sometimes tell about that is uh, there was working with a, a company that has they have these massive warehouses and there's all these moving parts. And so they had to figure out how to get, um, when admin people came into the warehouse, the warehouse workers knew where it was safe to go and where they could walk and where they couldn't walk and all this kind of stuff. But when the admin people would come into the warehouse, you know, they could wander into areas where it really wasn't safe for them to be, or they could interfere with, you know, processes that were going on. And um, so rather than trying to train all the admin people who went into the warehouse infrequently, all of the, the stuff that the warehouse workers knew, um, instead they just put red carpet down where it was safe to walk. Mm. And so when the admin people go into the warehouse, really all they have to know is stay on the red carpet, you know? And so then that's a case we're trying to train them, you know, to understand all the complicated things about how the warehouse worked was going to be a big task, but putting down red carpet and fixing the environment rather than trying to fix the person is a much more efficient um, way of handling it. And probably a lot less error prone, Mm. Um, you know, people make mistakes and, you know, um, if you can make the problem simple for people stay on the red carpet, then, you know, you're still going to be probably far better off in terms of air proofing the system than, than trying to get a whole bunch of people to remember something that they use infrequently. Right. No. And I think that's a, a great example of, of right. Learning, not, not always being the answer that sometimes you do just need to deal with, with an environmental issue, um, or, or something rather than trying to create a, a learning intervention or, uh, to go, to go around that. Um, and I'm really glad that you talked about um, that issue of, of habit, because I know when you put out the second edition of Design for How People Learn that you added uh, that chapter called Design for Habits. And so I think that was mm-hmm. I'm really great that you, I'm glad that you emphasized that part there. Um, you know, I'd love to, since you've been working in, in the field for a, a number of years and you've had a lot of uh, different experiences as an instructional designer working with all types of different organizations, you know, just looking back at that and thinking at what you've seen, what changes have you seen in, in the learning field in, in the last, you know, decade or so? Yeah, it's an interesting problem because um, in some ways I feel like we haven't seen enough changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I, one of the big challenges that I think we have altogether in any kind of learning endeavor is getting effective feedback on what's working and what's not working. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a tough problem because a lot of times we're teaching things that um, are going to have a very diffused impact in the system. Um, they're not going to be immediately visible. You know, if um, if it's something that, you know, if it's a really visible behavior, so I'm teaching people to wear their safety glasses when they go on the factory floor, then I can just kind of go out and I can be like, people wearing their safety glasses, they are, great, you know, and it's very visible and I can go head count or whatever and, and you know, no, yes, it's working or no, it's not working. Um, but most things aren't quite that obvious, especially, you know, with professional organizations, you have this sort of ongoing professional development and then it becomes this sort of big question of what are we doing that's really effective and what are we doing that's not so effective? And I do think that that's an essential component of any uh, field or discipline getting better is getting really good feedback on, on things. You know, I mean, I think there's a reason why a lot of instructional technology, a lot of e-learning stuff doesn't look that different now than it did 
10 years ago or even 15 years ago. I mean, I got started doing e-learning in kind of the mid nineties, um, cause I'm old, but, um, uh, <laughs> been doing this for a while in the mid nineties. And, um, uh, we were doing some really kind of interesting, um, you know, interactive stuff in that was running on CD-ROM. And then, you know, then the web came along and we sort of were like, well, how has to run on the web so we can't do anything too complicated. Um, so we made it all simple. And, but then, like, you know, tools like Flash made it possible to do more complicated things on the web. And then mobile devices came along and were like, well, at least run on phones and every mobile device. And so we made it all kind of simple again. And so we kind of seem to be stuck in a cycle of... Um, uh, primarily information delivery as the thing that we're trying to do with a lot of learning experiences, um, which has led us to believe and was led us to believe that a lot of the web-based solutions to learning are about chunking information nicely and sending it out to people. But um, if you think of information um, as the primary building block of learning, that's probably very logical. But if you think of the primary building blocks of learning as things being like trying stuff and getting feedback mm -hmm. or um, being able to see examples of good uh, good instances or of any of those kinds of things, um, then all of a sudden, you know, your learning design probably changes a bit. And uh, then you, you know, then suddenly the information delivery kind of formats don't don't really you know completely satisfy or meet the need. Mm. Well, that's very interesting, and uh, that idea of kind of there's this cycle of we we find a, a platform or a format and we kind of get more sophisticated, and then the next one comes along and we sort of simplify. So maybe if you um, look ahead and think about what formats might be coming or what big developments might be coming, you know what what do you see on the horizon for learning? It sounds like you don't feel like. You've seen a, a ton of change in the past decade or decade and a half. Do you think there's some big things coming on the horizon that are going to impact how how we learn and how we teach learning? Yeah, I actually do. Um, uh, you know, the unquestionably the buzzword of like you know the last year or so has been micro learning, mm -hmm. and if you um, optimize your micro learning responsibly for ga and gamify it. It's like a buzzword hack trick or something, but, um, uh, the, um, I'm pretty cynical about those. Um, I'm cynical about, uh, micro learning because I feel like, you know, we've been doing short little performance videos for a long time. I don't think that's new and I'm not sure that micro learning is really a thing beyond that. Um, so I, you know, I also don't think that, um, one of the things with micro learning that makes me crazy is there's this implication that that people's attention spans are getting shorter and that um, mm -hmm. uh, that so then we have to keep making the learning shorter and shorter to sneak in under people's shortening attention spans. And I really am not a fan of that notion. I think it's wrong. I think it's I think people um, attention switch a lot. I think people are distracted a lot. Um, but if something's genuinely interesting or useful to people, they can pay attention. You know, people watch movies still, people watch hour long TV shows. You know, I just was at a conference the other day and, you know, people were, you know, sitting through and paying attention to hour long lectures. Like that hasn't, that ability fundamentally hasn't changed with humans. And I know we've got a whole lot of stuff about millennials and whatever, but you know, it, most of it, it turns out, isn't based in any kind of, um, empirical reality. So, uh, the, um, 
so I'm skeptical of a lot of those kinds of things. And it turns out, you know, gamification sounded really cool when it first came out, but it turns out it has a lot of problems. And so you really shouldn't be doing it unless you can kind of apply it at a, kind of an expert level, things like that. Um, but, um, uh, the one that I think is going to change a lot of uh, things is really um, the virtual reality piece. Mm-hmm. You know, virtual reality and augmented reality both, I think, are going to be pretty significant game changers. Because when we can do really recreate environments and create immersive simulations for things, everything kind of changes about how we think about learning experiences. So, um so I think that one is, um, I think that one's really the, you know, and we've been talking about it for a while. I mean, I went into my first virtual reality environment in, I think, 1998. Um, uh, and it was, you know, it was an enormously expensive uh, environment called the cave and it wasn't all that fancy. And now, you know, now I can do that with um, my, you know, do essentially, you know, that kind of environment with my smartphone and a cardboard headset from Google. But um the um, uh, so we're really on the cusp of the technology being both practical, affordable, and you know uh, good to work with um, because uh, and we're going to benefit enormously from what the game industry has done in terms of that because they are highly motivated to figure out problems like motion sickness in virtual reality <laughs> environments and you know all those kinds of things and they claim they claim they've got that one like so we'll see um, I haven't tried it out yet because I am one of those people. Um, <laughs> But um, he's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but you know, I think we're 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 there now in terms of people are actually uh, you know starting to use it. Uh, I think we're probably three or four years away from it starting to get any kind of real widespread adoption. But I think that that's going to be a massive difference. And part of it is that. Um, it really emphasizes the context-based, scenario-based, being in the environment kinds of learning opportunities. So, you know, instead of being in a classroom talking about um, emergency medical care, you're going to be, you know, wandering around the virtual clinic, you know, and treating virtual patients. Um, and, uh, you know, it, this can get applied to, you know, any form of learning or any type of topic. What does the real world look like when you're applying this and how can we, how can we use these immersive environments to, to create safe learning experiences that feel real to people? Yeah, no, I think that ties in very nicely with what you were saying about, you know, if, if you, if you move away from thinking about information as being sort of the building block of learning, right, this with, with virtual reality and augmented reality, we really do have much better tools uh, available than for, for, for that hands-on practice and that real-world simulation of, of, of the, the environment they're going to actually experience. Yeah, um, one of the things that um, I think is super fascinating is the research they're doing at the Stanford Virtual Reality Lab. Um, the primary researcher there that's doing some just amazing stuff is Jeremy Balenson. And um, what they're looking at is do does having the experience have a bigger impact on people's behavior than um, uh, than just learning, you know, being, you know, sort of given kind of cognitive knowledge about something. So I can know something or I can believe it, you know, and right. so like somebody can know smoking's bad for them, but their belief, you know, is like, oh, that's a long time away. And um, I think people's perception of time has an enormous impact on behavior because if we delay consequences, and this is well-documented in um, 
behavioral economics. If we delay consequences, people downplay risks or people downplay rewards or, you know, things like that. So it's most valuable, you know, it's most valuable or concerning to you if it's going to happen right now, um, if you push it out into the future. And so one of the things they're doing with their virtual reality environments is experimenting with the idea of projecting people into these futures so that they can more directly see the consequences of of their actions. So um, I can't remember who was out of Stanford. Um, Somebody was experimenting with um, they would do the art. They would take your picture and they would artificially age your picture so you could see what you're going to look like you're at, at age 65 or something. And then they would see how much money people would put into a retirement account. And so the people who hadn't seen their aged self put less money, you know, towards retirement than the people who had been who had had an actual visual picture of like this is what my I'm going to look like at 65. So this being able to kind of mentally project yourself into other scenarios. Um, you know, so if we want to talk about having compassion for refugees, for example, if you can go walk around a virtual refugee camp and go, okay, this is the circumstances, and the New York Times did something like this with a VR kind of environment, does that fundamentally change? You know, people can know that refugees are suffering, but that's a very kind of intellectual knowledge. Can you go have some of the experience of what they're going through, and is that going to have a significant change on their behavior? They've done some really fascinating research um, at Stanford. It turned out people are far more likely to reduce their um, uh, like disposable paper consumption if they've um, been cutting down virtual trees with virtual chainsaws as opposed to just being told trees get cut down to you know, provide this paper. And so if you use too much, you, you know, um, trees will get cut down. But if you've actually been out there cutting down virtual trees, it will have a bigger impact on their behavior. Well, so t- tied into some of this research that you're sharing, you know, one of the questions that we always like to ask folks who come on the Leading Learning Podcast is is how you go about um, keeping up with your own professional development and your own learning. So it sounds to me like uh, kind of uh, staying up on top of research is going to be probably part of your answer, but, but I'd love to hear how you approach your own learning. Yeah. So, you know, it's, this is a really interesting problem. I was talking to a friend of mine who was doing some programming for a user experience event um, conference. And we were talking about the fact that when you're sort of, when you've been doing this long enough that you're kind of arguably in terms of um, your field and, you know, like the sort of top 20% of, you know, levels of experience or years of experience in your field or things like that, that, that events and conferences and things like that aren't really about you anymore. Um, you know, there might be a few interesting sessions to go to, but I mean, I, I go to a lot of conferences and um, they aren't really for me and that's okay. That's fine. There need to be conferences for people coming into the field or people who are mid-career and are looking to develop and, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but that means that um, most of my development comes through um, uh, kind of some of the online communities I'm attached to. I'm in in three or four groups of um, uh, different e-learning professionals. I have a Facebook group for the book that I actually just started the other day. Um, uh, and we've already got like 100 people, so that's very exciting. Um, but, you know, like a nerdy space to kind of talk about instructional design issues. Um, and then I've got some groups with people who are very um, – sort of senior experienced people and, you know, we do sort of knowledge sharing there. Um, uh, you know, I was looking at unconference, uh, I, sp- I was going to a lot of unconference weekends with, again, pretty experienced people because it was more about like, Ooh, what are you working on? Oh, that's really interesting. What are you finding out about that? And having, um, 
I always say my favorite thing is basically nerdy shop talk. So <laughs> being able to kind of uh, compare notes with people. The main place where more kind of formal learning stuff is helpful to me is when I get outside of my own strict discipline. Um, and so, uh, you know, the behavioral economics side of things or the, um, you know, sort of neuroscience and psychology research um, is another one. Or, or when you want to learn um, your Danish pronouns. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I still use more formal learning experiences, but I tend to use them outside of my field. Um, so what other fields can contribute? And, you know, the nice thing about being in instructional design is that, you know, it turns out learning about a lot of different things is really germane. So it's there's always something new to learn. Um, I always say I'm an instructional designer because I'm happy as long as I get to learn something new. And it doesn't matter that much what it is, as long <laughs> as it's something different, I'm happy. So. Well, great. So um, last question, uh, just if listeners want to, to connect with you or learn more about what you do, where would you have them look? Um, yeah, so uh, my website is uh, usablelearning.com, um, and I do blog there, although the blogging has been a little bit slower of late. Um, I'm on Twitter as Usable Learning. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, just started a Facebook group uh, for the book um, called Design for How People Learn. Um, and pretty much anybody's welcome who's interested in kind of instructional design topics and learning more about that. Um, and uh, yeah, we can give you the links for show notes or, or whatever, whatever Ab- makes sense. So. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll make sure to get those uh, published in the show notes so that people have an easy way to find you at usablelearning.com on Twitter and find that Facebook group. So Julie, thank you very much time for taking time to speak with me. Yeah, lovely. Thank you so much. That wraps up our interview with Julie Dirksen. As we're exiting, we want to say thanks again to Castle, a full-service certification and licensure testing company that also offers its clients a variety of learning solutions capabilities. Castle is our sponsor for the second quarter of 2017, and you can find out more about Castle's custom learning solutions at leadinglearning.com slash castle. And we also want to mention again that recordings from Learning Technology Design, or LTD, our virtual conference specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development are now available. You can get all the details and sign up for those at ltd.leadinglearning.com. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 78. And while you're there, you will see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be truly grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll get you to the right place. And we really appreciate you taking just a little bit of time to do that. It let lets us know that you're getting value out of the podcast, and it also helps make it easier for for others to find the podcast when they're searching. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, uh, you can spread the word via another social network of your preference. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey.